This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. We have a guest with us today, Barbara Sloan, who has worked for decades in the service industry as a tipped worker and runs a women-owned construction company in the heart of Manhattan in New York City. And I'm Mary Elkins. Barbara Sloan is the author of Tipped, the life-changing guide to financial freedom for waitresses, bartenders, strippers, and all other service industry professionals. Barbara's mission is to help tipped workers and low-income workers learn how to achieve financial freedom like she did. She's passionate about this subject, and we're so happy to have her. Welcome, Barbara. Kathy, Mary, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to chat with you both. Uh, Yeah, we are excited to meet you. Tell us about your background and upbringing and the education that led you to your chosen fields. Yeah. So most people who meet me today do know me as somebody who owns a women-owned and operated construction company here in Manhattan. But what they don't know is that I spent two decades working mostly in tandem, but sometimes solely in the service industry. And for me, I got my start very young. I worked a ton of jobs in high school, like many people. And at the age of 19, I would say this is sort of one of the pivotal moments for me. Um, I moved from Michigan to Los Angeles and started answering Craigslist ads for random jobs that paid cash and got really working in the service industry. So I was waitressing, I was bartending, I was dancing at clubs. I mean, if you name it, if it involved tips, I did it. And I moved around the country for about 10 years, traveling, working some construction jobs and some service industry jobs. And then in 2013, I moved to New York City with my wife and I got two jobs. I got one job working at Coyote Ugly, which I don't know if people know this, but um, it's a bar where you sing and dance on the bar and you hit your patrons and, you know, it's 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 a fun, fun, raunchy time. Um, and then I got another job working on Wall Street. And so it was for an unregulated firm. So this was a big education for me because it was part trading, trading floor, part independent sales organization selling usurious loan products. So I got to see the ugly side of financial services. And after about six months and seeing our third trader shipped off to rehab, I was like, this environment is too toxic for me. And so I left Wall Street and I got a job at the construction company that I now own. And they were growing and they afforded me the the opportunity to grow along with them. And they wanted me to set up an HR department and manage the accounting and finance department. I had never had HR before. So I didn't understand anything about 401ks or FSAs or paid time off policies or really what a person in HR did. And this was kind of the pivotal moment when I was like, oh, it's these benefits and safety nets 
And this mindset that my clients, who are these really wealthy people, and I was getting to have conversations with them on a daily basis about how they viewed money and how they made trade-offs. And so I was like, it's these systems and this mindset that allows people to build wealth and people in my industry, in the service industry, have been left behind. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I read one little anecdote that I wanted to ask you about. Talk about the house you grew up in. Yeah. Um, so when I this was this was back when I was 19. Um, my dad, the what prompted the move from Detroit to Los Angeles was that my dad also passed away when I was 19. Mm. And when he passed away, uh, our family could not afford a plot or a tombstone. And in my head, these were things that I thought were required. And I carried a lot of shame around around what I perceived to be my inability to provide him with a legitimate death. And so the house that I grew up in was sold against my wishes. And I remember one afternoon in a moment of grief, I was driving past the house and I decided to write a letter to the homeowners. And I said, if you ever decide to sell, please reach out to me. This house means a lot to me. It was my childhood home. I wanted it. Um, they reached out to me and by the age of 20, I became the homeowner of my childhood home. But the problem was that it was hundred percent financed. I had paid more than twice the price that the previous owners paid only months prior. Oh. And then, yeah. And then I spent oh. the next year maxing out over 10 credit cards <gasps> to renovate the house myself. Oh. And so I worked myself through my grief, but I put myself in a terrible financial situation. Mm-hmm. Were you able to sell it then at some point at a, at a markup? Yeah. Luck, lucky for me, I sold it in 2005, um, but it mm-hmm. in no way covered the costs that I put into it. Mm-hmm. And so when I sold it, I was relieved of the mortgage, but not the debt. Oh. And so when I was starting over in Los Angeles, I was still a young person dealing with losing a parent. And if you've ever lost a parent at a young age, then you know that it's just a constant reminder that life is precious and, you know, life is meant to be lived. And I was like, wow, and I'm carrying around all this debt for a house that I no longer own, a life that I no longer live. And man, did it feel unfair. I was Uh just like, this is, how was I at 19 able to get myself into almost $200,000 in debt? Oh, that's an extraordinary nightmare. But how brave you were. Mm-hmm. I, I like to say I had a lot of confidence <laughs> to be able to buy a house and renovate it at the age of 19 with no education and no skills and no money. So <laughs> that, that takes Very good. a ton of courage. That, that is. Tell us about how tipped workers are excluded from traditional wealth building opportunities. Yeah. So we went through some of those benefits that serve as safety nets, but the two biggest ways that people in America build wealth is through their 401k and through their primary residence. People in the service industry do not have access to a 401k. Majority of people who work for bars, clubs, restaurants, the owners of those establishments, over 90% are mom and pop establishments, Mm -hmm. which means that they work and live off of small and slim margins. They don't have the resources to be able to provide for an HR person or to be able to manage something that has heavy compliance like a 401k. So people who are in this industry don't know that they can set up retirement accounts for themselves because all they ever hear about are 457s and 403bs and 401ks and things that aren't offered 
from their employers. And so they think that they're excluded from this. But part of my book and my message is that, you know, you don't need a retirement account specifically to be able to retire. You Retirement accounts, the only reasons they're called retirement accounts is because they're tax advantaged. You can still retire off of your savings. You can retire off a brokerage account. You can retire off an IRA. These are all things that you can set up for yourself. Uh-huh. Other ways, Other ways that people are included, we mentioned that primary residence factor. Well, when you're working in the service industry, you are often not tracking your income in the same way that most Americans don't track their expenses. And so when you're not tracking your income, you're not aware, one, of how much you're actually earning and the potential and possibility that it has. But two, that also means that you're not claiming in full the amount of income that you should be, which means you're not on the receiving benefit of one of the most important safety nets of all, which is offered in the U.S., which is Social Security. Oh, yeah. Average, That's right. Yeah. So the average payout for Social Security, which was designed to be a partial income replacement plan in 2020, was less than $20,000. So if you can't imagine living on less than $20,000, and then you're also someone who wasn't claiming your income in full, then you are going to be in real trouble when you try to rely on that into, into your retirement in the event of a, you know, you have to stop working or, or a disability of some sort, uh-huh. which majority of people who worked in the service industry and are currently retired rely solely on social security. To me, uh-huh. that is terrifying. Uh-huh. Sure is. Yeah. Well, along those lines, what are, what are free or low cost ways that people can com- combat scarcity mindset? Yeah, I think I love talking about mindset shifts because for a lot of people in low and middle incomes, they can't start with big financial goals because they don't have the resources. So they may not be able to set up a big emergency fund right away. They may not be able to start investing right away because they don't have the resources or they may be in debt or they may have other financial obligations. I always like to have people start with mindset work because One, majority of the mindset work is free. And two, the stuff is as important as the technical stuff. So some free ways that people can start combating scarcity mindset would be things like mantras. I love mantras. One one of my favorite mantras when I was working in the service industry was money comes easily and frequently because it does. And when you're looking for a mantra, you should look for something that is true. Love that. Yeah. Something that's true, but also something that meets possibility. So, you know, uh-huh. with a little bit of a reach. So mantras are a great way to do that. Identity work is another way to do this. If you have saved, you are a saver. Adopt that mindset. If you have started investing, you are an investor. You know, I think our language is a huge resource, just like our money or our time or our energy. And we need to be very careful in how we use our words and our language as a resource. Two other ways that I love to combat scarcity mindset are charity and gratitude. Mm-hmm. These are very similar in the way that they do a trick to your brain. When you are giving, then your brain is like, oh, I have enough to give. Therefore, I have enough. And the same way for gratitude. When you're appreciating what you have, when you're not thinking about what you don't have. And so it does a trick to your brain and it pushes you towards and into an abundance mindset. And so those are some free and low cost ways that I love for people to be able to tap into that abundance mindset and work on some of that mindset stuff before maybe they're able to tackle a little bigger financial goals. That applies to everybody. That's great. Um, Why is claiming your tips so important? 
Yeah. So we touched on the social security aspect of it. Um, but also what we didn't circle back to is that primary residence. When you're claiming your income, you typically need two years of fully claimed income in order to be eligible for non-predatory rates in the real estate market with traditional lending. And so if you want to get in on some of that, you know, the second way that most Americans build wealth through real estate, then you need to be claiming your income so that you're eligible for a traditional mortgage that are not at predatory rates. Other things include like what we saw during COVID. People in the service industry were not on the receiving end of unemployment benefits because they a lot of them are not claiming their income in full. And so if we had not had that booster portion of the COVID relief, then people in the service industry would have been really, really screwed. And so it's really important. One of the first things I tackle with people in the service industry is that you have to claim your tips. You have to track and claim your tips. Tracking is so important. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I bet most people aren't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if- Because I I think they think they're getting away with, you know, they're getting a cash break. They're getting a break from the IRS. Yeah. And I mean, who who would blame them after you realize all the benefits that they're not on the receiving end? But I don't think it's as malicious as trying to get away from it. I think it's more so just- you know, we, for a lot of us, we don't meticulously track our expenses because we don't have to. And in the same way, these people are not, they are, they're going to turbo tax or H and R block and they're just throwing a dart at the wall. I don't know. How much do you think I made last year? <laughs> you know, like I think it's oh. more, more just because they're not keeping a ledger of what's happening each day. And so they're like, mm, I probably made like 30 K or 40 K. You know what I mean? And the employer yeah. doesn't have any record of it. Does he? Yeah, um, unless it's credit card tips, which sometimes the IRS is putting some new regulations in place where they're trying to require an employer to claim those. That's highly problematic because if you're in a service industry position, oftentimes you're not getting the full amount of that tip that you're receiving. You have to tip out other support staff members. So if you're a waitress, Uh you're tipping out your busboy. If you're a bartender, you're tipping out your bar back. If you are a sommelier, you're tipping out somebody who's helping you stock wine. I mean, there's, there's so many people that are supporting those tipped positions. And so if somebody is not tipping and or forced claim tipping is happening, then that may not be the actual income that they are receiving. Wow. And how can your workplace environment sometimes sabotage your workplace goals? Yeah. A big part of the reason that I wrote this book was because the other industry that I know as well as the service industry is construction. And in construction, they created an organization called OSHA. OSHA was responsible for helping to minimize workplace injuries and workplace deaths. They educated the workforce in order to change the industry from within. And that's really what I wanted to do with this book is to educate the workforce so that I could change the industry from within. And so a big part of that is just, I didn't have the connections or resources to be able to connect with them at a governmental or a legislative level. And so this was, this was my response to that. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. Good. How can- Thanks. How can people live off their tips? You touched on this, but how can people live off tips on a fluctuating income budget? Yeah, I think one of the things that tipped workers and other people don't realize is that when you are working on tips, you're you're an employer. You are your own employer. A lot of the skills that you learn in this industry 
um, are, are that of an employer. You're learning sales. You're learning time management. You're learning the beginning, middle, and end of a transaction. You're learning how to manage and utilize resources to your advantage. It's There's so much overlap in entrepreneurship and in the service industry. And so I like to say that in, in the way of managing your money on a tipped income, you have to be as good as an employer, as good as a company, because it's just as difficult. No company in the U.S. has the same income every two months in a row, and yet they manage to pay their expenses, pay their employees, and operate on a fluctuating income. Is it as easy? No, it's 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 difficult. We can honor that. We can say that it's going to be harder for you, but it's all that much more important. And so when if we look to those corporations and those companies for advice on how do we mirror what they do with their money? I'm very lucky to be married to somebody who does corporate finance. And so when I talk to her about what she does with her with her budgeting seasons, what they do is they track, they track their trends. They, they make targets and guesses, and then they look back and see if those guesses were right. And that's what you have to do when you're on a fluctuating income. You have to look for trends. You have to hit, make targets and then look back and see if you hit those targets and then adjust and iterate as you go. Well, Barbara, let me ask you this. Quite a lot of the lower paying jobs don't have benefits. And you touched on this a little bit, but how can people set up their own benefits if their employer doesn't provide them? Yeah. The first one I always think of is paid time off for this, right? Ah. Most Americans enjoy 20 paid days off per year. That's two weeks and seven holidays, 20 days. And so if you're in an industry that doesn't have paid time off, like imagine 20 days, we get a month of paid time off in this country. And when you don't have that, you are often operating burnt out, exhausted, not taking care of yourself, you know, your health, maintenance on on yourself, your home. And so it has a lot of consequences. And so for people in this industry, I always like to also add that even if your state requires paid time off, like if you live in a state like New York City, for instance, that has mandated paid time off, people in the service industry do not receive that. And the reason behind that is because tipped workers are the only industry that are held to an entirely different sub-minimum wage of $2.13 federally per hour, which is- Oh my goodness. Just absolutely laughable. And so- one, if you get a paid day off, that's eight hours at $2.13. We're looking at $17 you're getting for a paid day off. But two, so you're not getting any portion of your tips. But two, uh-huh. with what we were talking about, forced claiming of some of their tips, it's completely eaten away in taxes. So cash flow wise, you never see a paid day off. And so uh-huh. taking a paid day off doesn't exist in this industry. One of the things I like to tell people to do is when we're talking about looking for trends and tracking your income, most people in the service industry have seasons of abundance. And so for me, like mine was always around the holidays. I made great money around the holidays. You know, people were extra generous around, you know, the Christmas, the New Year's, the Jewish holidays. And so I'll always tell my clients, like, let's take the month of December. And if you get an extra thousand dollars in income in December, let's put that into you know, 10 envelopes or whatever of $100. And there you have 10 paid days off for you for the next year. And so you may not have an employer giving them to you, but you can set these things up for yourself. All benefits are, are a bucket or a system that is established for you to be able to take care of yourself. 
And while it may feel not fair that your employer doesn't have this set up for you, that doesn't mean that you should deny yourself the ability to take a day off when you need to, to avoid burnout because burnout will just lead to you getting fired or other things happening in your life that you don't need to happen. You need to schedule time to go to the dentist, to go to the to the doctors, to take care of your appointments, to take care of your mental health. And so paid time off is one of those ways that I like to talk about setting up a system for yourself. The other we touched on, which is retirement accounts. My favorite one is actually a benefit that we all have to set up for ourselves, no matter what industry we're in. And that is our emergency fund. I like to highlight the fact that everyone has to create them for themselves. Like no employer is giving people an emergency fund. Everyone has to create their own. And so you're not starting from behind the the line there. And But one of the reasons that an emergency fund is more important for people in the service industry is that when you're in the service industry, there is a power imbalance at play, right? You are working for somebody who is like your miniature boss for the next hour. And if you are reliant on their tip in order to pay your rent or buy food or take care of yourself in any way, then you're not going to be able to stand up for yourself if there are situations that people are requesting things that you you do not want to accommodate or that would not be of the values of your establishment. And so when you set up that emergency fund, which I recommend is typically three to six months of your mandatory living expenses, and you put that in a separate account, when you set that up, it gives you back power. It allows you to say, I'm not reliant on your specific tip, so I can protect myself. I can say no in situations. I can walk out of a toxic job or away from a toxic employer, or, you know, not not work seven shifts in a row because my manager says I have to. And so it's I think it's really important that all everybody has an emergency fund, but especially people in the service industry. Such good advice. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful advice. Well, it it sounds so difficult for tipped tipped employees and people in the service industry. What is it possible for them to achieve financial financial freedom like you have? Yeah, and I think that's a big part of what this book is is here for is to give people hope that it is possible for them. One of the things I like to point out is that if you're comparing yourself to somebody who's earning say six figures, they have to save up for a six-figure retirement because that is their lifestyle. But for people who are low and middle income earners, you don't have to save as much. You don't have to invest as much because you're not living a six-figure lifestyle. So in some ways, that is a level playing field as well. And I always I always love to talk about the janitor. We all in the personal finance space, we all love to talk about this janitor. It was a recent news article who he made forty thousand dollars a year and he passed away leaving something like eight million dollars. And he was a frugal, frugal person that invested all of his money into, you know, index funds. And, you know, it's, he's just a great example of somebody who is a low income earner who set up systems for himself in order to be able to build wealth. And when you see those small examples of people in unlikely places doing those great things, it tells you, yes, it's possible. And I'm also an example of that too. You know, I worked a lot of different jobs, so not just in the service industry, but, you know, I'm, I'm one voice and one example saying, absolutely, you can do this. Mm-hmm. You sure are. And yeah. tell us some fun ways that tipped workers can save an emergency fund. Oh yeah, this is a good one. So if you're a waitress and let's say that you have like a section of six tables, 
I like to say that like make one table your saving section or your retirement section. And when you make it a game, it just makes it a lot more fun, a lot more approachable. And I will also say that you treat those people a whole lot different knowing that they are going to be paying you for the rest of your life. Um, I also think it's really fun. Like bartenders take your really crappy tips and invest those like, oh, you didn't want to give me 20%. Well, I'll invest it and I'll turn it into 20%. Um, or yeah, if you're working at a great. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you're working at a club, maybe you want to pick somebody with a, a specific color of a shirt and put their money into your investment or savings savings goals. Bill types is another way. Um, but yeah, I always encourage people. The, the money journey is a long one, and it can be a dull one, and so we should try to make it fun and whimsical whenever, wherever, and whenever we can. I That's, love those. Tips. I love that too. That's terrific and so creative. Um, yeah. Um, I have a question though. Should we pay down debt before we start investing? I like to take a dual approach. So I think a lot of people carry shame around having debt, but debt is just a thing you hold. It's not a thing you're in. People often say like, "Oh, I'm in debt." Debt is not a thing you're in. Debt is just something you hold. And we can hold a lot of things all at once. So we can pay down debt while we invest. Behaviorally, I think it's really important to do both at once because it's important to watch things grow. Whenever you're just paying things down again and again and again, sometimes it's almost like like, like binging. Oh, I'm going to be so good. I'm going to be so good. I'm going to be so good. And then once you pay that card down, what happens? You start that debt cycle all over again, and you're like, "Oh, I've been good for so long. I'm going to go put this back on my credit card." And you end up in, you end up in a debt cycle, and that's oftentimes what keeps people in poverty. But if you're watching something grow while you're paying something down, you're much more likely to find that balance where you can see something great happening while you're also paying something down. Now, if you have high high interest debt where it's above, you know, ten percent, twenty percent, I consider that. That's a little bit hair on fire debt. And so I would take a, a very focused approach of just paying down that debt. But if you have something like student loans or something between like three and eight percent, by all means, do both. Do both. Good. <laughs> yeah. And give us a tip for how can people get started investing today? Oh, this is a good one. So my favorite chapter in my book is my investing chapter because I think one of the problems with financial services is that it's so full of jargon. It's so intimidating and it's there to gatekeep, right? Like the reason that people in financial services do so well is because they're often like, oh no, don't worry about all of this complicated jargon. Just hand us your money and we'll take care of it. And the the problem with that is that oftentimes that's at a big cost. It sounds like, oh, it's only 1%, but 1% can be a third of your portfolio. And so it's really, it's really dangerous to let other people do your thinking for you. Nobody is going to care about your money as much as you. And so my chapter is, an in, the entire investing chapter is an analogy to being at the bar. So if you understand what it's like to be at the bar and hang out at the bar, you're going to understand investing by the time that you're done. I I often um, like to compare wine and investing. So people who are into wine, you know that you can get way into wine. You can get super, super, super deep into wine. You can talk about notes and body and regions and tannins and mouthfeel and all of these things. You can get age. I mean, you name it, you can get so deep into wine. 
but you don't have to get that deep into wine in order to have a great wine experience. You just need to know a little bit about what you like, what your tolerance is, and you can have a great wine experience. And the same is true for investing. You can get really deep into investing. You can talk about bell curves and PE ratios and Forex. I mean, you name it, you can get so deep into investing, but you don't have to get that deep into investing in order to have a really great investing experience. Again, you just need to know a little bit about your risk tolerance, how long you have to invest for, and and you can have a great you can have a great investing experience with with just those little bit that little bit of knowledge. And so I like to start people off with something that is more focused on retirement like an IRA or a brokerage account, but really investing, you can learn that in in 15 pages of my book. Great. I love that. That's terrific. Thank you. For everybody, not just tipped workers and service workers. That's great advice for all of us. And I know you're passionate about this. So please tell our audience why the general public should even care about tipping and tipped workers. Yeah. I mean, so you you all like to talk to people who are kind of in their third act of of work. And I think this is an, a, a very interesting and unique industry for people who are able to kind of scale back on work. I think it affords a lot of opportunity. I love the idea of this industry for people in their third act, because if you already have a lot of those safety nets in place, then what this industry can do for you is have instant access to cash so you can shoulder a sequence of return risk. Let's say that you were in a down market year and you don't want to start pulling from your retirement accounts. This industry will give you access to cash. You can back into an income number, let's say, so that you don't need to you know, inflate your, your income tax portion or anything like that. The other thing I love about this industry is that social aspect. So many of us, as we get older, as we approach retirement, as we leave maybe our professional jobs or our other bigger industries and, and communities, it can be a little lonely. And this industry is a great way to get that social aspect back into your life. You're meeting, hanging out with people in your community. You're being active for a few hours of the day. You know, this job is very in- different when you have to work it. 50, 60 hours, but it's a whole different thing when you only have to work it for 10 or 15 hours. That amount of movement is really great for your body. That access to cash, that engagement with people, that being providing a a value and a service to our communities. I think when COVID happened, we really saw the impact that hairstylists and bartenders and waitresses had on our community. We all have an epidemic of loneliness happening. And this industry is the place where you get that smile. It's the place where somebody gets to say, you're welcome here. It's the place where you can go where the cooking, the cleaning, the dishes is not your own. A place where you can relax after a long, hard day. I think it's important to our economies, our community. It lifts up our real estate valuations. Anyone who's ever been a real estate investor knows the first thing you look for when you're looking for properties is what's around. What what bars, what restaurants, what beauty and body services are around? This industry is a keystone industry that props up all of our other industries and the economy and our communities. And there's so many important intangibles. And so I like it not only because I think it's 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 vital, but I also think for people who are in that third act of their life, it's something if you can, you should explore because I think there's a real there's a lot of great opportunities for people to connect with their community members and to to get that little bit of purpose and maybe that little bit of cash that they need. That's great. That's that's really fun fun tips 
I like that. And I have to ask you, though, what is it like running a construction company in New York City? I know we're talking mostly about your book and your your coaching, but I I, I have to ask. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's a lot of fun in a lot of ways. I work for really high net worth clients. So um, a lot of our, I, I don't know if you like I kind of call it real estate porn because most of the apartments that we're doing are around Central Park. They're gorgeous. They're really high net worth clients. So they're putting in really fancy finishes. And so it's it's really fun to watch the the before and after shots. But in between the before and after shots, it's a lot of labeling. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of tough phone calls. And as a woman in this industry, you know, the benefits of being a woman in this industry is that, you know, you can ask a lot of questions. You can stay curious. No one's giving you a hard time. There's no bravado. There's no ego that needs to happen. Um, but sometimes uh-huh. you are dealing with a lot of other people's ego. <laughs> and so that's a challenge. True. Yeah. You have yeah. to make them all happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what is your company called? So we have great SEO. It's called Manhattan Renovations. And yeah, if you want to check out some really beautiful apartments, please check out our website. I do. Some gorgeous, in, in gorgeous New York. apartments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have to sign a lot of NDAs. And so sometimes we're not allowed to take yeah. photographs of our work. Uh, we're working for a couple clients right now. We work for a lot of heiresses. I think being women in this industry tends to lend other women to find us like, oh, you know. And so we tend to work yeah. for and with a lot of women of high net worth. And that is really such a great and unique gift and opportunity for us to have. How here. wonderful. Yeah. Mary yeah. and I have a friend that's about to move to New York City and she's shopping we do. apartments now. Yeah. That's she's, right. We will tell her about your company. Send we her should. my way. We should. Yeah. Well, we I'd love to hear more about your book, Tipped, The Life-Changing Guide to Financial Freedom for Waitresses, Bartenders, Strippers, and All Other Service industry professionals. That is quite a title, but it sure says it all. We hear that Forbes picked it up as one of the top five personal finance books to read for 2023. That is super exciting. Tell us about it. Oh, that was, that's such an honor. You know, I, I didn't have the expectation of mainstream or Forbes when I wrote this book. This was really just a mission for me when I realized how left out these people, when I realized that you know, SIPs, as I call them, service industry professionals, age into the most economically disadvantaged people in our population, that they're twice as likely to experience poverty and homelessness. It was just, it, and I'm somebody who had a, had been able to figure out a way to build wealth within that industry. I felt it was kind of my duty to give back and and connect with these individuals and share some of my knowledge. And I think what was hard about writing the book was I knew I couldn't talk to everybody and that that slowed me down for a bit because I was like, well, I can't teach people to budget their way out of poverty. And so if I can't help the people who are in the most need, then what's the point? And then, you know, somebody was just like, write the book you wish you had had when you were 20. And I was like, I can do that. And so this has just been, and, and I think this is also a beautiful part about what you two are doing in that you're talking to people who are in this third act of their their life or looking for maybe what's next is next is that this is a culmination of every aspect of what I've been doing as far as like the industries I started in, all of the business knowledge that I learned, all of the financial knowledge that I learned. But if you had told me at 18 that I would be a personal finance coach for people in the service industry and teaching business owners and giving talks and writing books, I didn't, I would never have known that that existed as an opportunity. So I think for people who are in this third act or in this, this stage of their life, like this is really an opportunity for you to explore 
all of the facets of your life up until this point and find a way to like glue it all into one next thing for yourself because that is what I found. And it's been a strange and wonderful journey. I am so inspired by you. Thank you. And I'm going to go out and get your book and I'm sure I'm certain that our audience will as well. Yeah, it's all around Amazon. Yes. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Barbara Sloan, author and entrepreneur, financial freedom advisor, and coach. You can reach Barbara on her website at tippedfinance.com, and she's on Instagram at tippedfinance. Thank you, Barbara. This is great. And once again, I am truly inspired. Kathy, Mary, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And we want to remind our listeners to watch us on our new YouTube channel, Late Boomers Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Late Boomers and at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins. And to write to us at our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z. We always try to serve you some inspiration and knowledge and hope that it helps you a little on your way. Please tell your friends to subscribe to our podcast. We're on every podcast platform and YouTube. Thanks so very much for listening, and thanks again, Barbara. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.